So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money episode 1325, Financial Adulting, with our guest, Ashley Feinstein Gersley. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I think there's this idea to be a financial adult, you have to know everything, you never make mistakes, but that's not the case. I still make mistakes all the time. I'm always learning. So it's making those small, consistent steps. It's knowing what's happening with your money, which sounds very simple, but is actually pretty profound to know what's coming in, what's going out, is it going to goals, what's going to expenses. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. We're all familiar with the term adulting, but what does it mean to be a financial adult, to actually be financial adulting? Our guest is Ashley Feinstein Gersley. She's the author of Financial Adulting, a new book that breaks down everything we need to be a financially confident and conscious adult. Ashley has been on the show previously. She's a friend of So Money. And in her professional life, she's a money coach, author of the 30-Day Money Cleanse, and founder of The Fiscal Femme, which is a fantastic money platform on a mission to end inequality through financial well-being. Ashley has appeared on the Today Show, CNBC, and in the New York Times. She's worked in the financial services industry for over 15 years, first as an investment banker, then in corporate finance, and most recently running her platform, The Fiscal Femme. In our conversation, we talk about, well, what is financial adulting really? Why she made an important point to include equity in her book. The second chapter deals with financial equity. And we talk about privilege, the importance of talking about it and even celebrating it. Here's Ashley Feinstein Gersley. Ashley Feinstein Gersley, welcome to So Money. Congratulations on your book, Financial Adulting Everything You Need to Be a Financially Confident and Conscious Adult. I love the conscious part. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm excited to be here. Finally, I know you've been working so hard on this book and I'm so honored to be in it, giving some feedback and insights. Um, You interview a lot of incredible people and you yourself such an expert. And there are a lot of financial books that come out every year, but I think what I've so far realized differentiates your book and there are many reasons, but one that really stands out is your insistence on making sure that this book touches on equity and consciousness, as opposed to just the tactics. I think it's important, right? You can't talk about money if you're not talking about where we are in the world and the inequities. And so before we get to that, chapter two in your book, you don't hide it either. It's not like buried at the end. It's not a postscript. It's like chapter two, equity and personal finance. Let's talk about the title, financial adulting. This is not a new term. We have all been using it now for many years. What's your definition of financial adulting? The term, I guess, financial adulting, anytime we talk about adulting, I think of leveling up and like self-care. So examples outside of, of financial adulting would be like hanging up my clothes or putting on like my phone on silent, personal boundaries. Um, so a financial adult to me 
is definitely about that. It's about taking small, consistent steps that lead to big results. I think there's this idea to be a financial adult, you have to know everything, you never make mistakes, but that's not the case. I still (laughs) make mistakes all the time. I'm always learning. So it's making those small, consistent steps. It's knowing what's happening with your money, which sounds very simple, but is actually pretty profound to know what's coming in, what's going out, is it going to goals, what's going to expenses, having financial plans that you feel confident in. And talking to my dream team, the people who read the book before it came out, there's this idea that you have to have very concrete to the scent financial plans. And a lot of times it's more of a a guideline, something we're going towards. It's adjusting every year as things change. We can't know how long we're going to live or what inflation is going to be or what our investments are going to do. So just having a general guiding North Star towards these goals. Um, And then, of course, you mentioned the equity component, understanding when we are coming from a place of privilege to use that privilege to close the gaps that exist. And then also when we're coming from a place of disadvantage or experiencing oppression to not compare ourselves with others and know that we're not starting from the same place. And I think that can really bog us down in in our financial goals and have us feel out of shame. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is financial adulting is taking ownership of your financial choices, really claiming your, uh, your goals, having accountability, owning up to your mistakes, knowing you're going to make them, you know, um, and, and de- delaying gratification, you know, we talk about planning and working towards your future. These are all things that my kids don't do. Um, so the, I, I think we're onto something. I think that the opposite of financial, ch- you know, child play is financial adulting and children don't take ownership for things. Their clothes are all over the floor. They don't take accountability. They blame others. They don't anticipate mistakes and get very, really upset when they don't win or don't get what their way. And God knows I'm still teaching delaying gratification. Hopefully they'll get it one day. So yeah, I think like literally that is uh, what an adult is. It's all of those things that you have to unlearn or um, correct. Uh, what someone once said to me, adulthood, adulting, not, not so much financial adulting, but just adulting is when you stop blaming your childhood <laughs> for the, for all of the reasons you're not where you want to be or you're, why am I this way? I mean, your past is important. Context is important. We all come from somewhere. We need to understand where that is and what happened to us. There's books about this. I think Oprah would agree about this, but like at some point you have to take ownership and move forward. Do you think that this is really a struggle for people? Like, why don't we take ownership, especially the, your audience, which I would imagine, you know, the idea of adulting really hits home for those of us who are out of school. We're still in our young professional life. I love the idea that adulting is ownership. It's funny because growing up, I always thought there was a moment where you felt like an adult. And so far, I've never experienced that moment. I still feel like the kid who's like playing dress up a lot of the time. Um, But I do think so much of my community and so many people who will be reading the book want to be financial adulting. It's just there's so much that's worked against us that has us not take ownership, not get started. Like we don't learn about this in, well, hopefully your kids, my kids will learn about this in school, but historically, like it hasn't been something that's taught. I studied finance, never once talked about personal finance. It's also taboo, which you're changing. Like the conversation is changing. We're talking about money a lot more, but that has made it difficult to learn. And I think there's also this idea that 
everybody else knows what they're doing and we just don't and that we're alone. And I think that can be really isolating and have us trust people that maybe we shouldn't take advice that maybe we wouldn't take if we learned a little bit more on our own. And so I think these breaking things down so they feel manageable and allowing us to take these more bite-sized steps rather than thinking, you know, like New Year's resolution, sometimes we think I need an overnight transformation. I'm a different person January 2nd. And that sets us up for failure that never works. So these small, consistent actions, I think, is a way that we can start taking ownership and feel like financial adults and see really great progress. Yeah, I think an important message is if you're financial adulting, you're also admitting what you don't know. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the pressure, Ashley, is like we feel like to be a real adult, we have to know everything. Mm-hmm. We have to have the answers. We have to have our fill in the blank together. <laughs> and we forget that like life is is as a journey and things are going to change and nobody has all the answers, even the professionals and even the person who looks like she has it all together doesn't. So let's all just admit our flaws. Okay. I think that could be a great takeaway for all of us listening. Like, let's just be open about what you don't know because you're not only going to help yourself, but you're going to help everybody around you feel not less than. And in chapter one, where you talk about defining financial adulting and the reasons maybe we have a hard time with it, you touched on some of them like, we're not raised to learn this stuff. We're not sure when to get help. It's so emotional. And then you talk about the oppression piece. Mm. Let's talk about that. And that'll transition us nicely into your whole uh, mantra and advice on financial equity. But what is it about the world that we live in? Racism, gender gaps, the systemic problems that contribute to the feeling that you're behind or like the actual being behindness, you know, not adulting. Yes, there's so much to this. So there's the history, right? If you think about what's intergenerational wealth and what's available from parents and even like their experiences, there's wealth. And then there's also just being the financial first in your family. So if you're the first person to go to college or the first person at a 401k, there's not that education available or guidance available from a parent, let alone an inheritance or paying for school. So I think there's the historical aspect and then there's like the current lived oppression and difference and what, and, you know, talk about learning and growing and the good news and bad news of financial adulting being a journey is when I interviewed 35 people for the book, you included, I learned so much and I've been doing this for 10 years and wrote a book on it. So it's never done. You're never done. Um, learning about this and growing and making mistakes. But what I found is that in every single chapter, which covers all the different areas of personal finance, like race, gender, your if you're in the LGBTQ plus community, if you have a disability, like this is impacting every single area of your personal finances, past and present. So that, you know, we it's, I think you can't not talk about that when there's so, I think there's so much financial advice that just assumes, you know, we're all just working towards the same thing and at the same pace and started from the same place. But it was really important to me to highlight those things and to have experts who could speak to different experiences because financial advice that doesn't acknowledge that if you are black, your home is going to be appraised for 23% less is not helpful. And um, at the same time, I also felt really passionate about 
acknowledging my own privilege because if someone has college paid for, I had my college paid for, then paying off my student loans wasn't a goal for me. And that's something, so I can move on to something different. And I think that acknowledging the privilege we have is really important in the personal finance conversation too. Right. There's a lot of shame though, around having privilege. Can we talk about that? Yes. You know, it's like, I don't want to admit that my parents are rich because then that's going to make people think that I didn't work hard, that I didn't deserve what I got or that I'm taking life for granted. We There's also really bad narratives around sitting with that shame, being afraid to tell people like my parents bought my apartment, you know, or, this isn't me talking, you know, but <laughs> and you see it on social media. You see this bipolarization. We don't want to give anyone who ha- came from riches any credence to their success. What do we, what do we think about this? Yes. I think you're, that's such a great point. And it's funny because at first when I started talking about this, it was scary and it was felt, did feel shameful. It has gotten a lot easier now that I've been really open about it. And it also, I find with all money conversations, when we are open to talking about it, other people start sharing and you realize that so many people are feeling the same way. Um, But I, I am thinking of a meme in particular. It's like, you're either you're like successful because of what your parents gave you or you worked hard. And I do think sometimes, especially as like a working mother, it is, I think about how, how almost impossible it is for me to be a working mom in a pandemic. And I have so much privilege. Like I can't even imagine how difficult that is with someone who doesn't have it, but it's still difficult. And I think how I balance it is like, I've made a lot of smart money moves but there, it made a huge difference to have the privilege and the, um, the support from my family and to be white. And, you know, there's so many things that I have um, privilege around. Don't we want to pass on wealth to our families and to our children and to our communities? I mean, this is what we're all working towards, right? So ideally, in theory, we're all going to be at a place one day where we have more than what we, what we have now. And that's that should be celebrated. And I would hate for my children whose grandparents were immigrants, whose mother was the breadwinner, my husband and I working our tails off to provide for them, to give them, yes, a leg up in life so that they don't have to come out of college with debt. But then I'm, you know, to talk about it, to be honest about it is really the next step to not take it for granted. Everyone's story has something to be celebrated. It's all varying degrees, but let's stop these, this sort of like either orness mm. and the bipolarization. It's either you had generational wealth or you came from nothing. And you know, it's, made. it's too much. And social media, while I love it, I don't think is the medium to be having these really deep, thoughtful conversations. I think it's where maybe we can um, begin, but it's where I see a lot of the fighting Anyway, I just wanted to get that off my chest. No, and it's really true on the polarization. And also, I think that was really important to me, too, is not only acknowledging my privilege, but being so grateful for what my parents built and gave me. And I've noticed that when I do share about it, that's what people do share. They say, I want that for my kids. This is what I'm working towards. This is what I'm striving for. I saw on Twitter, um, one of my personal finance friends, Jason, uh, he wrote, we're kind of like talking out of two sides of our mouths. We're saying we're poo-pooing the folks who came from wealth 
and discounting their success and saying, well, you just had it easy. And on the other hand, we're saying we want to, we want to build generational wealth and basically be that person that we're slamming. It's like, can we just notice the hypocrisy? Right. Um, Let's talk about real estate because that's another hot topic in our audience. We love talking about real estate. You you dedicated a whole chapter to it, home home ownership that is uh, in your book. What do you make of what's happening in the real estate market now, Ashley? It's so hard for um, particularly first time home buyers, particularly people of color, to get into this market. It always has been. Now it's like impossible. You need all cash. You need to like wave the inspection. (laughs) It's making me wonder what the future of wealth creation via home ownership, which has forever been this historically sound vehicle to do so generally. I don't know anymore. What do you think? Yeah, such a good question. It is nuts. (laughs) The stories I'm hearing and just like the the different processes and the different locations. And it feels like a frenzy, a frenzy right now. Um, Something. So I interviewed Fee Gentry for the book. Yes. She's been on this show. I, I found her from your article, uh-huh. which Good. is how I knew um, how I found her work. And she, you know, one of the things that it made me realize talking to her is that, yes, we want to learn about real estate as we're ma- making these decisions, but having a true expert to talk about it, to understand the market, to, it can be really valuable. Um, so to leverage the professionals in your life, but also understand like how they get paid and what their incentives are is really important, but it's good to gather because they're in it. And like, it was interesting hearing her advice for actually getting <laughs> successfully buying a home. She's saying, I'm telling people to do things I never said six months ago. Like, like what? Like having all cash, like bidding, like putting playing a, the game. So yeah. she's able to play the game. Okay, she's she's yeah. playing the game, so they actually get their house. So I think, um, yeah. So I think it, it's was it sounded like it was so market specific and so time specific. Like what is happening in that market right now? That the people who are on the ground who are in it can be really yeah. helpful resources. It's so fascinating because part of what's driving this is the lack of supply. I think that's like 90% of it is like there's just nothing to buy. And so can we create a a tool that can help homeowners sell their home? They're stuck. This is a problem. Homeowners feel stuck. I can sell my house, but where do I live? I can't compete in this market. Then I become another loser in this market. At least now if I'm in my home, people are pulling out their equity, they're they're doing cash out refis or they're getting HELOCs so they can at least leverage the growth in their home value without moving and use that to, you know, build a playroom or redo the kitchen or pay off student loans. But we need to create I think some something in the marketplace to allow it so that homeowners, existing homeowners can leave their homes. And there is actually, there is a tool, there's an, there's an iBuying or iBuyer.com is a, it's a company that says, okay, look, we'll give you all the cash for your home. We'll pay you a little bit less than what you probably will get if you do the open house and all of that, but we will give you the cash so that, and we'll give you time so that you can find your next place without feeling like you've been displaced or you're now like stuck in this market without 
a place to live or you have to feel rushed to find a place because usually you have to sell your home to buy the next one. So there's, there's, you know, private companies that are now realizing this, this friction and trying to create something where they can ultimately create more supply in the market, which is a win for everybody. Except for sellers. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's interesting too, because I, sometimes when I look at how it works, where it's like you put in with like last and final bid, it feels like that is not beneficial for the homeowner. Like if people were allowed to like go back and forth, like it's just very interesting. I have, uh, I was just talking to Alex Langoni, who's our CNET um, mortgage and real estate reporter, writer. We talked just about this. I was like, we cannot do these silent auctions um, because what it creates is superficial demand. Like people think that there's going to be 20 bids. This is where the, it gets shady. A real estate agent could say, yeah, well, there were 50 people who came to the open house, which could be true, but are all those people going to make mid- bids? No, but you have it in your mind that you're competing against 49 other people. And so you're going to, you're going to inflate in your mind, like the price of the home and what you think it'll sell for. True story. There are people in our neighborhood that God accepted offers on homes, home sellers, and then they come to me and say, Farnoosh, would you believe the difference between bid number one and bid number two was $250,000. So the person who got the home paid over two, $250,000 more than the person behind them who made a bid. Like, how is, how is that right? It's right. not right. It's, it's going to create a nightmare for that new homeowner because that price is not going to sustain. Right. Like they're going to have, they're going to be already in the hole when, before they move in. Like that is what's happening. And I, I think like we need to get in and regulate, mm-hmm. regulate. Like what is the value of that home? Not the 250 no, more. No. Yeah. And it's just because it was hyped up and that person got scared and it's not right. It's not right. Um, I want to talk before you go about health insurance, because this is another hot topic that comes up on our show a lot. Even if you have good insurance, you know, it's just one of those things where, you're so scared to when you get admitted into a hospital because you have no idea if your insurance is actually going to come through for you. What's your advice? Anything new you learned in exploring health insurance and healthcare in, uh, especially now in the, the COVID era, the pandemic era? Yeah, I think something that I've learned in writing the book and just in the, in my personal experience with health insurance is that I used to think that bills were just what they are. <laughs> And they're not. If you call up and ask questions or it the bill's not matching what you think your coverage is, like there is opportunity to negotiate. There's opportunity to correct errors. And so, you know, in people's free time, since everybody has so much free time to just call insurance companies or hospitals and um, talk through this, but especially for big bills where you think there's an error, you think there's an opportunity to get the, the bill down, it's... I, you know, there's a section in the book called don't be afraid to fight and doesn't have to be like a screaming, um, fighting, but just more like, I, I want to understand this. Is there, um, and I think too, there, there are, pol- um, assistance programs. So anyone can apply, but you might not qualify, but it's worth checking, especially if it feels like a bit, the bill is a high proportion of, um, your income. Well, I want to leave more for our listeners to go and grab the book and congratulations. It comes out. It's out now. It's been out. Um, this is airing and the book uh, has come out just recently. But um, I do think this is 
it should be a staple in everyone's bookshelves. You know, like 20 years ago, there was a book about how to be a financial adult, but that was for a different generation, a different time. I feel like this is the new generation's must have book on your shelf, on your coffee table, gifted to your friends. Ashley Feinstein Gersley, thank you so much and congrats again. Thank you. Oh, that means so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much to Ashley for joining us. Learn more about her book at financialadultingbook.com. Perfect for anyone looking to get a firm handle on their personal finances. Coming up on Friday, we're answering your money questions related to financial planning brought to us by our partner this month, Prudential, as we celebrate Women's History Month. Thanks for tuning in and I hope your day is so money. Money.